This is the Daily Signal podcast for Thursday, October 22nd. I'm Virginia Allen. And I'm Rita Del Judas. Today's podcast features an interview from the right side of history with co-host Jarrett Stutman and Fred Lucas. Jarrett and Fred speak with presidential historian Tevi Troy about his most recent book, Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. Don't forget, if you're enjoying this podcast, please be sure to leave a review or a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Now, on to our top news. Democrat California Governor Gavin Newsom says that his state will assess the coronavirus vaccine on its own. On Monday, Newsom said via Fox News, of course we won't take anyone's word for it, saying that 11 doctors and scientists will analyze vaccines developed by the Trump administration or vaccine developers. On Tuesday, a federal appeals court ruled 12-3 to 3 in favor of North Carolina's new voting plan to allow ballots to be counted that are postmarked by November 3rd and arrive before November 12th. Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals Judge James Wynn wrote that the change is simply an extension from three to nine days after Election Day for a timely ballot to be received and counted. That is all. North Carolina usually counts absentee ballots that arrive in the three days following the election. But last month, the state decided to extend the window to nine days because of the increase in mail-in votes due to COVID-19. The North Carolina Republican Party and the Trump campaign sued over the ballot counting extension. The three judges who dissented have asked the plaintiffs to appeal to the Supreme Court. The maker of the pain medication OxyContin has said that it will plead guilty to federal charges that is part of a settlement that includes more than $8 billion in fines. Purdue Pharma, the company that makes OxyContin, which has fueled the opioid epidemic per USA Today, will plead guilty to fraud and violations of the federal kickback laws. The criminal charges do not, however, absolve the company's owners, the Sackler family, of future criminal liability, federal authorities said. 76% of Americans believe that social media companies have too much power over what political news people read, according to a recent Washington Examiner and YouGov poll. The poll was conducted of 1,200 American Democrats, Republicans, and independent voters. About 11% of the survey participants said social media platforms had the right level of influence, and only 6% said they did not have enough. Even though three in every four participants agreed that social media companies have too much influence on America's political news intake, 57% said social media companies should restrict content they believe to be false, per the Washington Examiner. Now stay tuned for Jarrett and Fred's conversation with presidential historian Tevi Troy. Americans have almost entirely forgotten their history. That's right, and if we want to keep our republic, this needs to change. I'm Jarrett Stepman, And I'm Fred Lucas. We host The Right Side of History, a podcast dedicated to restoring informed patriotism and busting the negative narratives about America's past. Hollywood, the media, and academia have failed a generation. We're here to set the record straight on the ideas and people who've made this country great. Subscribe to The Right Side of History on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Stitcher today. Tevi Troy is a presidential historian and former White House aide. He is author of the recently published book, Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. Thank you so much for joining us on The Right Side of History. 
Hey, thanks. I really appreciate it. It's great to be here, and I always like talking history. Absolutely, and obviously this this book is incredibly pertinent uh, to the times. Uh, so many stories coming out of the the, the Trump White House. Uh, as many others. Uh, but I think one thing that you really hit on in this book, obviously covering the presidencies from, from Truman to today, is how common it is to have conflict in the executive branch. I mean, I think back to even the, the presidency of George Washington, where you had battles between Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton, two secretaries who wanted to shape that White House. But you talk a lot about in your book about how different personalities and different people in different administrations have really shaped the presidency in a way. Can you talk about that and its history? Oh yeah, absolutely the case. And look, <laughs> Hamilton Jefferson fights are the uh, the subject of a famous musical that some people have heard of recently. Uh, <laughs> the, in my book, Fight House though, I talk really about the era of the White House staff. Hamilton and Jefferson were fighting all the time, but they were actually cabinet secretaries. Today you have the situation and it really dates back to late Rose Roosevelt, but Truman is the first president to enter with the White House staff where you have these White House staffers who are next to the president. They're usually his kind of political advisors. But you also have these cabinet secretaries. And the cabinet secretaries think that they should be the lead person on, let's say, foreign policy. Whereas the person next to the president has the president's ear on foreign policy. And that leads to natural tension and something that was a recurring issue in White House, natural tension between the national security advisor and the secretary of state. Of course, White House isn't just limited to those tensions. It's not just about foreign policy, but there that is one that is emblematic of the kinds of tensions you find. And it actually does have an impact on policy is one of the things I've found throughout my research. So White uh, House really is illuminating in that it has a lot of exciting and uh, sometimes sordid tales of people going after each other, but it also has a real impact on the shape of our nation and the direction of policy. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's interesting that there has been, I think, such a, a growth in the power of the White House staff. Can you explain how that transition took place? You mentioned that the Franklin Roosevelt administration and, and where that real pivot point is. Can you explain how that's worked as far as the executive branch? Yeah, it's a great question, because what happened under Roosevelt is government is expanding. It's getting bigger and bigger. It's dealing with domestic crises like the Great Depression, and then uh, it was a few years from dealing with World War II, but it was clear America was going to be getting more and more involved in international affairs. And they set up this commission called the Brownlow Commission. And the determination of this Brownlow Commission was a four, famous four-word conclusion, the president needs help. And those four words led to the creation of the White House staff. Now, originally, the, these White House staffers were supposed to be people with, and here's another quote, with a passion for anonymity. Now, that's clearly gone away because we hear all too much about White House staffers <laughs> and they have their own Twitter accounts these days and they often leave to go on TV shows and stuff like that. But the, the idea was that they were supposed to be anonymous people giving their best advice to the president. That has developed over time into the White House staff that we know today. It's called the Executive Office of the President and you've got a press secretary's office and you've got a domestic policy council, the National Security Council. All those things did not exist in 1930. But now in 2020, we have all those things and each one of them has their own little bureaucracies. When I worked in the White House for George W. Bush, I headed the Domestic Policy Council. And in doing so, there was a staff of 20 plus people who were just doing those domestic policy issues. So these staffs are getting bigger and bigger and sometimes they overlap with others. So the National Economic Council has a whole bunch of healthcare issues. The Domestic Policy Council has a whole bunch of issues. Sometimes. They overlap with one another, and it leads to elbowing and, and uh, pushing and uh, 
you know, the, the kind of infighting in the White House that I detail in Fight House. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the uh, brinksmanship among White House staffers and just this contrasting what we talked about earlier with the cabinet versus White House staffers. Historically, we've seen cases where Henry Kissinger, before he was Secretary of State, he was really running the country's foreign policy as a national security advisor. Later with the Obama administration, everybody would say Valerie Jarrett was the real chief of staff. And I wonder if you could just like kind of talk about how people sort of assumed roles and, and took positions that weren't necessarily theirs. Yeah. Well, look, this dates back way before even the Kissinger fights with uh, William Rogers, who was the Secretary of State under Nixon, who was kind of disempowered by Kissinger's machinations. But in the Truman administration, there's a big fight over whether to recognize the state of Israel. Kind of surprising today, given Israel is a very close and excellent ally. But at the time, it wasn't clear that the U.S. would recognize Israel. And the Secretary of State, George Marshall, who was a hero of World War II, is opposed to recognizing Israel. And Truman has a political aide in the White House, a guy named Clark Clifford, who wasn't famous then, but would become famous later. Clifford makes the case in front of Marshall and in front of Truman to recognize Israel. Marshall is irate that he loses this argument, and he never again speaks to Clifford or utters his name for the rest of his life. How's that for holding a grudge? So the, these fights go back for a long time. And in fact, when Clifford even is presented in front of Truman to make the argument, Marshall looks his, down his nose at Clifford and even says, what's Clifford doing here? Suggesting that a domestic policy or a political aid shouldn't have anything to do with this kind of important historical uh, world geopolitical issue. But Truman backs up Clifford and says, well, General, he's here because I asked him to be here. And that really sums it up, that one sentence, he's here because I asked him to be here. The reason Kissinger was close to Nixon and was able to push Rogers aside is because Nixon asked him to be here. The reasons Big Brzezinski, the national security advisor, was constantly fighting with Cyrus Vance and got the better of him in most arguments is because Carter wanted him there. And that is really the key of what's going on in the White House. If the president wants you, then you have a level of power and authority that is given by virtue of your closeness to the president, and that gives you an advantage over some of your rivals. Which president do you think uh, handled the kind of bickering between the staffers? I mean, sort of kind of played a fatherly role of knock it off kids and kept things in control. Yeah, so, so I'll, I'll briefly talk about two presidencies. I'll be bipartisan here and talk about one Democratic, one Republican presidency. In the Reagan administration, Reagan did have a bit of a, okay, you fellows work it out approach. And there was fighting between Ed Meese, who was the, um, the counselor to the president, and Jim Baker, who was the chief of staff, and Mike Deaver, who was the deputy chief of staff. Uh, those three were the troika. And they actually uh, were so scared that one of them would have a chance to talk to the president without the other two presidents that they were kind of joined at the hip. And they would always go to any meeting where the president was together. And uh, in fact, after Reagan is shot, the three of them come together to visit him in the hospital. And Reagan says something like, gee, fellas, I didn't know we were going to have a staff meeting. Uh, so there is some tension there between them. But I think Reagan knew what he was doing. He specifically told Baker when he made him chief of staff instead of me, he said, make it right with Ed. And Reagan, as we all know, got great results for the American people. So some of that creative tension from the, the different uh, factions in the White House, I think, worked to the president's advantage. In the Clinton administration, I think uh, Bill Clinton also had some uh, some successes here. Early on, his White House was a bit of a mess. There was a, a lot of inexperience, very young aides who didn't really know what they were doing, and uh, and, it, and they really tacked to the left. And Clinton 
as you guys know, was a moderate DLC, Democratic Leadership Coalition uh, president who really was trying to take the Democratic Party to a more central place. His staff got a little out of control on the liberal stuff. Clinton is defeated soundly in that 1994 congressional election when Republicans take over the House and Senate for the first time since 1954. And Clinton recognizes that he has to tack back to the center. He brings in a secret advisor, codenamed Charlie. His real, it was really Dick Morris, who we, we know from uh, his TV fame. And Dick Morris is secretly advising Clinton about how to move back to the center. Other White House aides who are more liberal, like George Stephanopoulos and Harold Ickes, they can't stand this. They're really angry at who this guy is. They finally find out who he is. They, of course, leak it to the press. And there's constant fighting between Ickes and Stephanopoulos against Morris. However, in Stephanopoulos's memoir, which is an actually an excellent memoir, one of the best White House memoirs written, he acknowledges that even though he hated Morris, Clinton got better results out of his staff as a result of having brought in Morris and led to that creative tension and allowed Clinton to triangulate and move back to the center. Well, speaking of, of triangulating, I think one of the more uh, certainly interesting conflicts in the White House uh, is between John F. Kennedy and his vice president, Lyndon Johnson, who uh, two men who seemingly did not like each other very much. And of course, you had the dynamic where Kennedy's brother, Robert Kennedy, was actually serving as attorney general at the time. And then a transition to the Johnson White House when Kennedy was assassinated. Could you talk about the dynamic between Johnson uh, and Kennedy and how that shaped both their presidencies and the relation, of course, to, to Robert Kennedy? Yeah, this is a fascinating one because Robert F. Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson pretty much hated each other from the minute they met. They met in the United States Senate when Kennedy, RFK, was a staffer and Lyndon Johnson was a Senate majority leader. So you know, Johnson is a much bigger deal, higher status. And Kennedy kind of refuses to shake Johnson's hand for a long time. And Johnson hovers over him until Kennedy finally reluctantly uh, shake, shakes the hand. And that kind of power move early on uh, set the tone for their relationship. They disliked each other throughout. And uh, as Robert F. Kennedy and John F. Kennedy's father uh, said, Bobby's my boy. When he hates you, you stay hated. And Lyndon Johnson did stay hated. And to uh, Johnson's chagrin, he becomes vice president in the Kennedy administration, but really doesn't have much power or authority. And RFK, Robert F. Kennedy, is the closest advisor to Kennedy as attorney general. He's obviously also his brother. And he is constantly stepping on Johnson and humiliating Johnson and pushing Johnson aside. But that all changes in a flash, in a flash of a gunshot in November 1963. Kennedy, John F. Kennedy, is assassinated in Dallas, tragically. And suddenly, Lyndon Johnson is president, and he's no longer kind of subordinate to Robert F. Kennedy, but he's, he's, John, he's Kennedy's boss. And Johnson is now the superior, and the power dynamic completely shifts in a way that's very uncomfortable for Robert F. Kennedy. It's kind of a lesson to all of us, you know, when you're uh, higher up on the ladder than somebody, you know, you never know if they could climb the ladder higher than you, so be careful how you treat them. And so Johnson and Robert F. Kennedy don't get along from minute one. In Johnson's first cabinet meeting, Kennedy comes in late. Johnson's convinced that it was to stand up Johnson and make him look bad. And they have an, a shouting argument in the Oval Office, and they don't talk again for two months. Now, I know coronavirus, there's plenty of people you don't talk to for two months, but not when you're the sitting attorney general in a presidential administration. That's kind of rare to have a cabinet secretary that senior not talking to a president for two months. So 
that that is an uncomfortable situation for Robert Kennedy. He eventually leaves the administration, becomes senator from New York. I know they're from Massachusetts, but he carpetbagged to New York. And Johnson is obsessed with Kennedy throughout the Vietnam War. Kennedy is kind of going left and becoming more dovish on the war. But Johnson feels like he can't. Now, firstly, he's afraid that Johnson, that if he moves left, then Kennedy will go out, flank him on the right and be more hawkish. But if he uh, stays to the right, then Kennedy's hitting him on the left. And Johnson just can't get over this Kennedy criticism. And it actually paralyzes him when uh, they were looking for answers in the Vietnam War. Um, Kennedy then jumps into the race in 68. Johnson pulls out of the race. Kennedy's obviously assassinated. But uh, that ugly dynamic really helped shape the 1968 race and also U.S. policy in the Vietnam War. You talked a little bit uh, in, in the book about uh, Jimmy Carter's pettiness and, and how that contributed to him being a one-term president uh, in terms of kind of, I guess, keeping the staff together. Could you talk a little bit more about that as well? Yeah, look, Jimmy Carter was a micromanager. And uh, one of his cabinet secretaries uh, made a joke that he was probably the uh, highest paid assistant secretary uh, of policy in the entire administration because he really got involved in the weeds of uh, legislation and regulatory language uh, in a way that I just don't think is appropriate or proper for a president or effective. A president has to be able to uh, step above everything, be able to delegate. Uh, Carter famously managed who would get to go on the White House tennis courts. Uh, which is kind of an absurd level of uh, micromanaging. And he also, at least in the early days, is unable to get himself to appoint a chief of staff. There's a guy named Jack Watson, who is the head of the transition under Carter. He is a natural to be chief of staff, but because some of the Carter campaign ads don't like him, they don't uh, allow him to be chief of staff. They're kind of aimless in the early days. They don't have a chief of staff, and they don't even know how to set up meetings. And one early Carter aide even said after they were kind of meandering and couldn't figure out whether to have meetings or not, uh, he said, if only the KGB, right, the Russian intelligence, the Soviet intelligence service could see us now, um, they'd be, you know, they'd kind of be shocked at how uh, ineffectual uh, the internal workings of the Carter government were. And so Carter eventually makes uh, one of his political aides, Hamilton Jordan, chief of staff. But Jordan, by his own admission, was not someone who was suited to be chief of staff. And it's not until the last year of the Carter administration that they finally go around and make Jack Watson the chief of staff. And Watson is, by all accounts, a good chief of staff, so good that when Carter loses the election to Reagan at the transition, Reagan meets Watson and says, you're the guy that everybody tells me if you'd been chief of staff earlier on, I wouldn't be in this position right now, meaning Reagan would not have won election if they had gone with Watson early on. <laughs> so it's all this conflict uh, in the White House, and there's clearly been a lot of it over the last half century. Is this necessarily a bad thing? It seems like to a certain extent it has actually in some ways benefited presidents to have some of these conflicts and has energized some of these presidencies at the same time bringing down a few others. Is it necessarily a bad thing or is it something that a good president could control and manage? Yeah, I think it's that, that latter than something a good president can control and manage. I think the key lesson of White House, the key lesson in my book, is that there's always going to be some level of conflict in the White House. Now, there are some levers I identify that presidents could use to manage that conflict to minimize it if they so choose or exacerbate it if, if they want. Uh, they have to know what they're doing in, in doing so, but there are ways to control it. Um, and I would say it's a continuum, right? If you have no conflict at all, 
And this is sort of like the Lyndon Johnson administration on Vietnam. Johnson wouldn't allow any disagreements on the subject. Then you get groupthink and bad policies. And in fact, in the Johnson administration, uh, there was a collection of aides who were who were skeptical of the Johnson policy on Vietnam, but they were so scared to even discuss it. They had a meeting, a group that they called the non-group because they were afraid that Johnson would find out about it. And they had secret meetings, lest Johnson know that people are discussing an alternative approach on Vietnam. So that way leads to paralysis. At the same time, if you have so much squabbling that the members of the team don't trust each other and they can't say anything in private meetings for fear that it will show up on the front pages of New York Times, Political, Washington Post, etc., then you can have open and honest deliberation among your team, and you're going to get leaking and infighting and backbiting, and that doesn't work either. And that, that's another form of paralysis. So a good president knows how to manage some conflict to get creative juices flowing so different people are, are giving different perspectives. But at the end of the day, make a decision that everybody feels they had their say on, not necessarily that they got to choose the direction, but they all had a chance to participate in the process. And if you can do that, then you're going to have a creative team that leads to good policy solutions. And that's kind of like what you had under Reagan. Something else in the book is about uh, the sort of the myth of, the, of no drama Obama. I wonder if you could get into that a little bit more. Obama definitely had this idea that he was going to be different from previous Democratic administrations and Democratic campaigns that were notoriously beset by infighting. You know, there's a famous story in the 2004 Kerry campaign that Howard Wolfson joins the Kerry campaign on a Monday and he sees all this backfighting and infighting and people at each other's throats and he goes out to lunch on a Wednesday and never comes back. So, uh, uh, Democrats were known for a lot of nasty infighting, and Obama was determined to be different. And he put out this concept of no drama Obama, and he hoped that it rhymed with his name. And they had a couple of rules. There was uh, the no, uh, I don't want to use a bad word, but the no a-holes rule, or don't mess with the structure rule. And these rules were imposed in the campaign, and it actually w went, worked pretty well in the campaign because one of their leading campaign staffers, uh, Dan Pfeiffer, said that there was only one unauthorized leak from the Obama campaign senior staff the entire campaign, and they quickly identified who that person was, and they rectified the situation. And that's pretty amazing not to get un unauthorized leaks from a campaign. It shows real discipline. Uh, when Obama comes into the White House, suddenly it's a slightly different situation because campaign, everything's theoretical. In uh, presidency, things are actual. People actually get certain jobs. And Pfeiffer himself, who talked about all those great rules that they had to keep control, Pfeiffer is unhappy that he gets passed over for communications director, and he seems to undermine uh, the person who is chosen above him, who didn't even work on the campaign. It reminds me of a famous uh, James Carville, uh, who's Democratic uh, campaign expert and uh, former Clinton uh, campaign strategist. Uh, he says, that a campaign is about screwing your enemies, a transition is about screwing your friends. So once you get to the real nuts and bolts of governing, um, the Obama administration did have some tension there. They were very good at not letting people know about the tension during the time, and that's why I wrote Fight House after the Obama administration, so I had much more insight into what actually happened. People were a little more open and honest after the administration, but during the administration, they were kind of all on board with this no drama Obama line, and you really couldn't get much insight into the real nature of the infighting that was happening at the time. So to change the pace just slightly, because I, I had to ask, this is, this is really something that's that's been the news. Uh, there was a recent uh, piece in USA Today about 
President Woodrow Wilson and his dealing with the Spanish flu. And you, you've written about this a little bit in the past, and especially given, you know, of course, talking today about coronavirus and President Trump's response and the different, of course, presidential candidates saying that they have different views and there's a disaster right now. Can you talk about a little bit about Woodrow Wilson and his response to the Spanish flu, given how much uh, it's pertinent to today? Absolutely. Uh, Woodrow Wilson's response to the Spanish flu, I, I would argue, was the worst disaster response in presidential history. And I do say that in my previous book, in Shall We Wake the President? A look at presidents and disasters. Wilson really did nothing about the flu. At one point, he was told by his doctor, not even a White House staffer necessarily, but, um, but his doctor, that the troop transports that were taking U.S. military personnel to Europe to fight in World War I, they were spreading the disease among the people on those ships, and a lot of those people were dying. And then they were also spreading it among the people of Europe. And he was told to look into the troop transports and maybe stop doing them. And the guy who was effectively the chief of staff of the army at the time, uh, sat in a meeting in the White House, and he strenuously objected to this, even though World War I was only a month away from being finished. He said, we have to keep sending those troop transports. And the bottom line is that 116,000 U.S. military personnel died in World War I, and 43,000 of them died from that Spanish flu. So uh, Wilson really didn't do anything about that. He also didn't do much in terms of informing the American people about what was going on. Uh, and he had a, uh, a committee on uh, public information led by a guy named George Creel, which is basically a censorship arm. And this, um, this committee on public information tried to suppress information going out about the flu so that people didn't really know the nature of what was going on, take steps to address it. Um, there, there were some uh, scientific um, efforts uh, that uh, were shown to be effective. So, for example, the city of St. Louis uh, imposed social distancing um, and the, the city of Philadelphia did not. And St. Louis had a death rate five times lower than that of Philadelphia. Maybe if Wilson had used his platform to share information across the country about some of the challenges that were out there, we wouldn't have had a, a situation where over 600,000 Americans died from that flu. And the flu was so severe and it hit a lot of young people, uh, somewhat in contrast to coronavirus uh, today. And the average age of the U.S. citizens, so the average age of the U.S. population, uh, decreased by a decade as a result of that horrible Spanish flu. So uh, Wilson really did not cover himself in glory, and uh, it's, not some, it's not a proud moment in our history. Amazing. Well, uh, again, this is Tevi Troy, who is a presidential historian and author of the recently released book, Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. Thank you so much for joining us on the right side of history. We really appreciate it. Thank you, and I hope uh, your listeners go out there and buy Fight House. They won't be disappointed. Thank you so much. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. You can find the Daily Signal podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Please be sure to leave us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back with you all tomorrow. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Kate Trinko and Rachel Del Judas. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.